0: official tapes it's the unofficial grateful dead radio program for the official releases so whatever we play on the radio airwaves have been given the stamp of approval from the band beyond description and how about a interesting tour inside the vault that has all of these releases talking about the warner brothers record label well there's a new book out not only does it talk about the vaults uh, grateful dead's vault but also other artists that are on the Warner Brothers record label and all kinds of good stuff as far as the early days of Warner Brothers.
1: I'm Peter Ames Carlin, and my book is Sonic Boom, The Impossible Rise of Warner Brothers Records.
0: It's going to be a history lesson, a lesson on good business, a lesson on bad business. And then, of course, it's also going to be a music lesson. We're going to find out everything we need to know about the Warner Brothers record label.
1: The idea of having the Grateful Dead on was also, they were like the preeminent San Francisco sort of psychedelic band. So you have them there, even if they're costing you money, even if their records aren't making money, having them on the label may encourage other cool bands who are more accessible to sign up because they wanna be on the label that has the Grateful Dead, which was the same thing. And that can be an incredibly long game. Like they had this guy Van Dyke Parks. It's sort of the beginning, the first chapter of my book, is about this record he made in 1967 called Song Cycle, which was an extremely avant-garde record. Van Dyke Parks was this kind of musician's musician who's probably best known for having worked with, collaborated with Brian Wilson on the Smile album that the Beach Boys made and, and didn't put out, you know, in 1966, 67. And then eventually, very, very eventually, Came out in 2004, 2005, after decades of being the most kind of notoriously unreleased album. You know, that like little bits would sneak out and it was so innovative and beautiful. It was almost like this perfect artwork that was too beautiful to exist on earth. And Van Dyke was part of that. And he made this record called Song Cycle, which was beyond psychedelic. But critics loved it and it was acclaimed, but nobody bought it. And yet, And nobody really connected with any of the other records he made, but they still had Van Dyke on the label for 30 years. He would make an album like once every four or five years or something, and there was other stuff. But then in the late 60s, certain freaky, interesting people got into Van Dyke, and one of them was like Peter Buck, who grows up to become the guitar player in R.E.M. And so when R.E.M. decided to leave IRS records and get a major label deal in the late 80s, one of the reasons why Peter was so interested in signing with Warner Brothers and one of the reasons why R.E.M. did sign with Warner's is because he had loved Van Dyke Parks and The Fugs and Captain Beefheart so much in the late 60s. None of those bands unto themselves made a dime for the company. But 20 years later, they sign R.E.M., who promptly turn around and sell 100 million copies of their records. It's a huge gusher of money. And it's because Peter and the rest of them were understood that this was the artist-friendly company to, to be a part of. And they could make the, the records they wanted to make without worrying that some executive was going to come into the studio and tell them they had to change anything, which was exactly how it penciled out. in this guy to to sort of create the ads, this guy named Stan Cornyn, who had been the editorial director kind of liner note writer character at the company. And uh, Stan hated advertising and had never done ads. And that was like why they wanted to hire him. So they brought him in and he created this persona for the company that was built around the series of ads that started, I think, in early 1969. That were the most like soft-cell, tongue-in-cheek, kind of self-lacerate, you know, not lacerating per se, but they would, you know, sort of tease themselves and tease their artists. And so, like the ad for the first uh Randy Newman record, and we all know what Randy Newman sounds like. And this was at a time when when he was such a fringe artist, you know. But people loved his songs, but he wrote these very dark, weird songs that had nothing to do with anything you'd ever heard on the radio. And so His ad for the Randy Newman record was, once you get used to it, his voice is really something. And there's like this huge headline and then a photo and then like this little sort of mini essay. And he's talking about like, yeah, Randy's got this weird voice and it's taking people some time to get used to it. But like, check out these reviews and check out what Paul McCartney said and, you know, Judy Collins and all these other well-known people. But the idea was it was a satire, obviously, of like Tiger Beat and 16 Magazine, you know, win a dream date with so and so. That was the other ad they did for the Fugs win a dream date with a Fug, you know, who are like these nasty, sort of scary, radical art monsters from, you know, the Lower East Side of New York City. Well, and for the Grateful Dead. There was the Pig Pen Lookalike contest where, you know, the idea was you would send in a photo of people who looked like Pig Pen, you know, because Pig Pen was the hairiest and scariest looking member of the Grateful Dead. But my favorite part of that ad was uh, at the very end where it was like, no, just like do not send the actual people. He said, "We got problems of our own." You know, which like, was, you know, I mean, they gave Pigpen a run for the money in the hairy, scary-looking hippie department. <laughs> you know, it was like making fun of, you know, it was almost, in a sense, sort of the audience teasing itself for their own previous, you know, naivete. But that was part of it. I mean, it was creating this idea of a record company that was about the music, that was about the artists. In 1967, Warner Brothers was actually two different labels that were connected. One was Warner Brothers Records, which had been founded by Jack Warner from the movie studio in 1958. And the other was Reprise Records, which was Frank Sinatra's label, which he founded in 1960 as a kind of a boutique label for himself and his friends and jazz artists, you know, because Frank was a real serious jazz person and really wanted to support artists in the way that he wanted to be supported. And at the time, he had the money and power to put together this label. The problem for both labels in their early years was that their founders and owners hated rock and roll and didn't want any rock and roll on their label because, you know, they were older guys and, you know, had grown up in a different era and et cetera, et cetera. But the problem was rock and roll was becoming the dominant music at the time. And so if you didn't have rock and roll, you were gonna be losing money. And both companies struggled for the longest time. And then finally, in 1963, Sinatra sold uh, reprise to Jack Warner in this incredibly good deal because it was part of a deal where he became a contracted actor at Warner Brothers Studios, which is what Warner wanted and was willing to pay a lot to get him there. And so he took on reprise and the companies basically became the same company only with two different identities and two small handful of different executives, but mostly a shared staff. In 1967, Mo Austin, who was the head of Prease, while Joe Smith was the head of Warner Brothers, Mo went to all the A&R people and said, look, we need to stop trying to make hit records. Let's just make good records and turn those into hits. And what he was doing was essentially telling them, we're gonna get away from trying to make hit singles because I'm pretty sure that albums are gonna be really sort of the dominant form in music and second of all he anticipated the growth you know the maturation and increasing sophistication of the rock and roll generation that these kids who had been teeny boppers just a few years earlier were now like generally in college You know, it was the baby boom generation and they were in college and it was you know more people going to college than in any previous generation and they were becoming more and more sophisticated. And whereas the older generation of executives understood that or believed that as kids grew up and became more sophisticated, they were going to leave behind rock and roll, like greasy kid stuff and become, you know, become Sinatra fans because Sinatra's great. And Sinatra is great. But the young people just wanted better rock and roll music. You know, they weren't going to give up on their music. But that was a revelation to most everyone. But, you know, what Mo Austin understood, having come up through Verve Records, which was a very sophisticated and smaller independent jazz label in the fifties was you can make a lot of money just by having great artists. If you do things with a sort of an economy of scale at Verve, they could make a profit from selling like 20,000 records. They would bring in artists that were like really the preeminent and best jazz artists of the day and create like these catalog, you know, and the idea was. If you have the best records, the best jazz records by the best jazz artists, even if you're only selling, you know, 30% of what a smash hit album is going to sell today, that record is going to continue to sell. And this artist is going to continue to have an appeal because generations of, of new fans are going to discover them and realize this is the real stuff. This isn't just a hit of the moment. Like this is Count Basie. This is Ella Fitzgerald. This is the greatest music going. And so the idea was they were going to sign artists who were the most sophisticated rock and roll artists of the day, and they were going to bring them in and build, even if they didn't sell a ton of records off the bat, they were going to start building these careers and maybe hopefully create artists whose records were going to be selling five years later, 10 years later, 15 years later, even 20 years later not anticipating that it was going to be, well, how about 50 years later, which is where we are now. Mo just understood that it was a long game. It's like, we're going to invest, money and we're going to expect that an artist like the Grateful Dead is going to take a certain amount of time to kind of find their voice and kind of connect with their audience but one thing they took into account was when they go off to play when they go out you know they always get a good crowd and that's a core of and every time they play they make more fans more people go to see them and come away like whoa what like what a great band It was the same thing with Fleetwood Mac. You get a band and you can see they've got a core audience and they're going out there and they're playing good shows and they're drawing people. And every time they go back to Columbus, Ohio, you play the 300-seat auditorium. And then they go back six months later and they're playing, they can play the 1,000-seat auditorium. And then they'll go back another time and they'll be able to play in the park for a couple thousand people. They're beginning to see that kind of growth. And they just had faith, like, if we invest in this, something good's going to come of it. And if it doesn't, as long as we're not getting completely slaughtered financially, then we're doing our best. The real sort of killer example of that is Fleetwood Mac, because he signed Fleetwood Mac in 1969 on the strength of their having some hit singles of their popularity in the U.K., But that was early, early Fleetwood Mac where Peter Green, you know, the lead guitar player, they were like a blues band, like a kind of creative blues band coming out of England. And then it was all dominated by Peter Green and and they didn't quite connect with American audiences, but they were still doing well overseas and, and they would come here and tour. And then, you know, Peter Green left and Jeremy Spencer became the main guy. And then Jeremy Spencer left and then they brought in Bob Welch came in and then it's like, And so this band is is a, for one thing, they're never, I think one of their records was a Bare Trees, sold about 300,000 copies, 350,000. That was by far the best-selling record that they had. And this is early 70s, when some records were really beginning to sell multiple millions. But they were somewhere between around 100,000 and 200,000, by and large. So the company wasn't necessarily losing money on them, but they weren't necessarily making big money on them either. But they also were aware of the fact that when Fleetwood Mac toured, they had a real solid core audience that loved them. And that was kind of showing a little growth. So when they played, they played good shows. People came out to see them. And also Mick Fleetwood, was, who also served as their manager a lot of the time, was really smart and easy to work with. So, you know, they're not the biggest band. They're probably never going to be the biggest band. They keep losing their lead people. But you know, it's always interesting and we kind of, you know, and we liked the music when the records come out, it was popular on the in-house system. So the band, they've released like literally, I think seven kind of like eh, selling to badly selling records. Meanwhile, shedding their lead person over and over and over again. And then, you know, in 74, it happens again. And Bob Welch leaves the band and it's like, well, what the hell are we gonna do now? And then Mick famously going to check out Sunset Sound or whatever the, the studio was. The guy there, Richard Dashett, plays him the just to demo the sound system and the monitor system, he he plays the Buckingham Nicks record. And Mick is like, Hey, who's that guitar player? <laughs> you know? So suddenly Stevie Nicks and Lindsay Buckingham are in Fleawood Mac. And they put out this record in 75, and instead of selling 100,000 copies, it sells 3 million copies. And then the next one sells 20 million copies, and they're off to the races. But it's like he had to stick with these guys six, seven years and did it. Whereas other record companies are gonna be, you know what, you know, it's like the money and space in our roster that we're wasting on you guys who aren't going to make us, you know, who might make us a little bit of money, we're going to dump you in the hopes that the new band over here is going to become breakthrough and sell a million copies now. But Mo was less interested in a million copies now than in what might come down the line. And, and it paid off again and again and again. Mo learned at Verve in the 50s, which is, it's like, okay, so, um, you know, Ella Fitzgerald is not going to be in the top 10. But on the other hand, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, people are still going to want to hear Ella Fitzgerald records. And that's still true. There's a steady stream of people who are buying this stuff because it's like, well, who are the greatest jazz vocalists? You know? Oh, Ella Fitzgerald's right in there. Well, I freaking love jazz and I love jazz vocalists. I better check out this record. So you go back and, you know, and suddenly ka you know, 60 years later, 70 years later, you get another record sale out of something that you paid for during the Eisenhower administration. And a band like the Grateful Dead, like one of the reasons why they wanted, they were so eager to sign the dead was that they knew that having the grateful dead who at the time of course were be, you know so avant-garde if you listen to anthem of the sun it's like none of this is ever going to be on the radio it almost practically defied like underground radio which was another counterculture thing that was just coming into its own at the time The sort of freeform fm radio that was just sort of being created at the time you know, mountains on the moon is never going to be on the radio. Like this Casey Kasem is not going to be talking about. Uh, but on the other hand, it's like it, these underground stations are going to, maybe going to pick up on it and then you can sell enough. And, and then who knows where it's going to lead. So it's like, great, go ahead and do your thing and we'll give you some time and we'll try to get it to work out where, you know, and hopefully it's the trends are going to move the right way. Joe Smith signed the Grateful Dead. Actually, in late '66, they signed the Dead. At the same time, Mo Austin was signing Jimi Hendrix, and so very quickly in you know the second half of 1967, early '68, you know they very quickly signed Van Dyke Parks, Randy Newman, Van Morrison, Captain Beefheart, The Fugs, Neil Young, Joni Mitchell. You know, and then within a year or two, here comes. James Taylor, Fleetwood Mac, all these different artists who at the time, you could never imagine hearing their records on AM radio. But what Mo and Joe understood was that AM radio was not going to be the be all and end all of how you sold records anymore. There was this whole other sort of counterculture media and that was like alternative magazines like Rolling Stone and Crawdaddy and also all the underground newspapers around the country that were coming into existence, that were beginning to define this new generation and the media of the new generation. And also, since they were not huge mainstream smash hit media stuff, they were not like the huge broadcasting, massive audience things, but the audience that they had was exactly the audience that was gonna be most interested in Warner Reprise artists and so they could buy ads and kind of and appeal to this specific group of people and sell a lot of records and that's exactly what they did so they would uh, you know buy full page ads in rolling stone and in all these underground papers and it didn't cost a lot it was like pennies on the dollar for what it would cost to do an ad on khj radio like the huge top 40 thing or billboard or variety or these huge you know media magazines by the early mid 60s on the strength of comedy records at first, you know, Bob Newhart records, and Alan Sherman, you know, the Hello Mudda, Hello Fada guy, very extremely popular in 1960, 61. They were starting to make money by like 63, 64. And then by the late 60s, when you know, Jack Warner sold his company to this company called Seven Arts in 1967. And the Seven Arts guys made some really, really smart moves. One of them was buying Atlantic Records before, right before they exploded. You know, it was, a, it was a pretty popular R&B label, but they were in the midst of signing bands like Led Zeppelin and Crosby, Stills, Nash and & Young. And, and so they were about to bam, you know, and also right before Aretha and some of the other soul artists were about to really have... Crossover success with top 40 stuff. But then in 1969, they decided to get out of that business and they sold it to this guy named Steve Ross, who was the head of a company that was then called Kinney National Services, and then which he rebranded as Warner Brothers, and then eventually bought up a whole lot of other companies. He was a real expansionist building this huge empire. And then by the early 90s, you know, he merged with Time, Time Inc., and it became Time Warner. And, you know, and then the disaster, you know, and then Steve passed away in the early 90s. But by the time Steve Ross was sniffing around the company, he was smart enough to realize in 1969 that he wasn't buying a movie company that also had a record company. He was buying a record company that also had a movie company. And what he anticipated was what actually happened, which was that the music business was going to explode. Even if the movie business was losing its audience to tv and to you know a whole variety of other types of you know the entertainment that was coming up at the time you know the sort of the the initial burst of like mid-century popularity and uh, of the movies was lapsing a little bit and they were girding for you know what was going to happen in the 70s but at the time movies were not making a ton of money and especially warner brothers movies were not making a ton of money but it's like this record company was suddenly growing and growing and growing and making more and more and more money. And by the early 70s, the growth in the music industry led by Warner Brothers was so astounding that they would get double digit growth year after year after year after year, which is extraordinary you know, in any one year, but then to have it just over and over and over again. Meanwhile, the music industry was growing like a multiple billion dollar a year industry. Because of the growth of the baby boomers and the way the media was changing and the fact that people were beginning to buy albums in quantity, the music industry just suddenly erupted in ways that very, very, very few people had anticipated. The record sales completely dwarfed the movie sales for years. And then the thing that changed the calculus in the late, in the early 80s was when Steve Ross bought the Atari company that was making the early iterations of video games. And for the first few years, suddenly the video game, suddenly Atari was making all the money in the company. And that was fabulous for about three years until the bottoms very quickly fell out on Atari. And that was what caused the sort of corporation-wide panic of 83. and Reprise merged in 1963. Moe came in with the Reprise people, and they were all outsiders. And they came into Warner Brothers, they moved their offices from where Sinatra had set them up in Hollywood, over the hill to Burbank, where the Warner Brothers offices were. And nobody was really sure what was gonna happen and how many people were gonna lose their jobs. Anytime two companies merge like that, suddenly you have 2X the number of employees that you probably need, you know, nearly 2X. So who's going to, and obviously the company that purchases the other company is the dominant company. But one of the things that Mo did that was really smart is that he went to the people who are now his bosses and he said, I know we're all going to function as essentially the same company, but the labels still need to be independent of one another. We want, it would be smarter for us to have two labels that have very distinctive identities because people who buy Reprise records aren't necessarily the people who buy Warner Brothers records, because Reprise has a certain kind of artist, and Warner's has a certain kind of artist. And so, you know, we'll be able to sell more records in the long run if we have these two different identities. And they agreed with him, and that worked great, you know. And then it wasn't until the early 70s when, for a bunch of reasons, Mo actually, by that point, was in control of the whole thing, decided to fold virtually all the reprise artists into Warner Brothers and just have it be the one company. But they would do deals, they would have like distribution deals with like Pi and other labels, you know, and it was a way to kind of get into forms of music that they had missed. You know, for instance, it's like Phil Waldman and Capricorn Records in the South. You know, they had the Allman Brothers and I think the Marshall Tucker Band and all the sort of Southern rock that these guys from Burbank hadn't gotten into. And Warner Brothers gets suddenly in the Allman Brothers business that they had completely missed. And then a few years later, they started a distribution deal with Sire. They got Sire because Seymour Stein, you know, working out of New York, had been very, very quick to jump on sort of the CBGB's kind of growing sort of art punk, sort of new wave thing that was starting to happen in New York that the Warner's people totally missed by being in Burbank. And so, you know, he's got talking heads. And and then he also had the whole dance scene worked out. So he signed Madonna. And I think they did a deal with Island or we're going to do. Uh, so it's like you can just do a distribution deal where, you know, you pay a certain amount and you get to distribute the records, uh, you know, either in a particular part of the world or everywhere. Or, you know, you can do these other kinds of deals where you co-own the company with an option to buy or you just out and out by the company. And, you know, the independent company, the smaller company gets this huge influx of cash and also access to what by the early 70s was this incredibly dominant distribution arm that Warner's had that they built, you know, the Warner Electra Asylum, you know, WIA or Warner Electra Atlantic, I think is what it was. There was the Reprise label, which was different from the Warner Brothers label. And then there's, you know, different iterations of the Warner label, which changed according to who the corporate owner was. Like It was different when Seven Arts, there was a time when it was Warner Seven Arts, and then it went back to being Warner Brothers Records again after Steve Ross bought it. There was the the Riverboat label for a while, then they changed it to the one that was like a kind of historic painting of Burbank. Yeah, and then I think the other thing that happened then is that then artists began to want to use the label as another place for them to sort of kind of identity point. It was part of the album design. So uh, the other thing that that Warners would do is that they would allow certain artists to have their own labels. So like the Beach Boys signed with Warners in 1970 and their records came out on brother records, brother reprise or something. You know, like Madonna had Maverick records, and some artists are more serious about running their labels, like they'd actually sign other artists. George Harrison would have artists on Dark Horse Records, or Madonna had artists on Maverick. I think the Beach Boys may have had one or two records come out on Brother Records that were not their records. Uh, You know, and Frank Zappa had straight records and bizarre records. Certain artists would go on straight and certain would go on bizarre. You know, the more weird records would, you know, blah, 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 blah. But he had a a whole other type of deal. Just different kinds of identity, different kinds of corporate identity. Everything is kind of constantly in flux, as it should be in an artistic pursuit. Moe and, and Lenny and those guys that I was really writing about kind of, there was like a putch, sort of a corporate putch where Steve Ross was smart enough to understand that as good a businessman as he was, he was not a record man. And so he gave Moe and Lenny at Warner's and Ahmed Erdogan at, at Atlantic, like his record guys. Run your companies the way you want to run your companies. And at the end of the year, we'll talk about numbers. And if the numbers are good, you don't have to talk to me for, you know, till for another year. Just like I won't, I'm not going to get my beacon on any of this because I don't know what you do, you know. But then when he passed away, there was this other generation of execs that came up and they figured that they were smarter than anyone else. And they did know how to do that. It couldn't be that hard. You know, it's like. They thought that in the same way that you can create a formula to make like the McChicken sandwich or something and then just make that sandwich over and over again and people are going to continue to buy it. You know, they thought that that there was like an equation like in any other industry about how, you know, just solve for X. Like, what is X here? Like, what is the people like? They like, well, this song was just a big hit. They must like that. That's what X is. So we're just going to create that like iterations of that but whereas it's like you need guys like Joe Smith who can you know walk into the Avalon ballroom and feel something about the Grateful Dead even though they know they don't really that this music isn't for them and they don't understand it and probably don't ever want to listen to it at home after work but on the other hand it's like he got it i can't explain this to myself i just think they're really really good cuz he could feel the power of it but it's like these corporate dudes just had no insight into that and figured they could just they're smart. They've got business degrees. They can figure this out. But guess what? They can't. I'm Peter Ames Carlin, and my book is Sonic Boom, The Impossible Rise of Warner Brothers Records. Not only were they the most successful record company over a period of, you know, nearly 30 years between around 1967 and and 1994, but also at the same time, the most artist-friendly, music-centric kind of counterculture type of label. They also put out some of the greatest records of the rock and roll era and built the greatest careers and artists of the rock era. Everybody from The Grateful Dead to Joni Mitchell, Neil Young, Jimi Hendrix, Fleetwood Mac, James Taylor, Gordon Lightfoot, the Doobie Brothers, and then you know later Prince, R.E.M., Red Hot Chili Peppers, The Replacements, I mean, that was on Sire, but Sire was owned by Warners at the time. Uh, Madonna, Talking Heads, just this endless litany. You know, Van Morrison, I mean, like really, really, really phenomenal artists. Well, there's always links off my website, which is cleverly called PeterAmesCarlin.com. Wherever fine books are sold, you know, The Evil Empire at, at Amazon is is there. It's a click away there. It's at your local independent store. If you're still going into shops or going back into going into shops, which I think is the thing to do, uh, you know, Powell's.com, uh, IndieBound.com, um, com.